Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll talk to one of the founders of a local women's jazz festival with big ambitions. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to talk about a new review at The Second City. Later in the show, I'll present my top 10 favorite films of 2023. Definitely some surprises on that list. And I'll bring you inside the Museum of Science and Industries Pompeii exhibit. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. The second-ever Women's Jazz Festival in northwest suburban Arlington Heights is coming to an end later today, but one of the fest's co-producers is hoping this is just the beginning of something even bigger. There are music lovers who maybe don't define themselves as jazz fans, but they're so intrigued by this concept of a Women's Jazz Festival and women-led groups that that has brought people in. We're reaching a bigger audience, which is exciting. This is Karuna Madava, co-producer of the four-day Women's Jazz Festival that's taking place at Hey Nani. I recently caught up with the Arlington Heights resident to talk about the fest and her appreciation for jazz. Madava says her introduction to jazz came at a young age when she started tap dancing, and her interest in the music continued the rest of her life. In fact, her curiosity about the art form ramped up later in life. When I retired, I jumped into self-study of jazz. And so for a few years after I retired, I spent a lot of time at the library, delving into jazz biographies, DVDs, CDs. And while that self-study was very enriching, it was lonely. (laughs) So after a few years, I was losing steam and I tried to find local classes, maybe continuing education classes for jazz history, and I couldn't really find anything. Unbeknownst to me, my husband realized that I wanted to continue with my studies, but really needed a cohort. And so I didn't realize he was researching master's programs around the country, but he was. And he found that the only program for jazz history was at Rutgers in Newark. And you don't have to be a performer. You don't have to be an educator. It's just strictly jazz scholarship. And so he sprung this idea on me in January of 2019. Hey, how about you go back and get another master's degree in jazz history? (laughs) So I was uh, shocked and amazed and thrilled and uh, went out and met with the director of the program, Henry Martin. And long story short, I started the program that September. Wow. I'm sure you got a wide breadth uh, of jazz history uh, during your studies, but in particular for your final thesis, you were interested in in women jazz musicians? Yes. Um, Early on, my first semester, I was really taken with the stories of jazz musicians. That's really what fascinated me the most. And probably because I myself am not a musician or an educator, um, I really just was drawn in by these amazing stories. 
But I very quickly realized all of these stories I was learning about were about men. And so other than the occasional mention of a female singer, Billie Holiday or Ella Fitzgerald, there were no women playing instruments in jazz. And I thought, this can't be true, and I'm going to start researching. So for all of my classes for the degree, anytime I got a chance to choose my topic for a paper or a project, I focused on female instrumentalists. And that eventually led me to choosing to interview the female instrumentalists in jazz uh, for my thesis. So it kind of was a natural progression from trying to fill in the blanks. Any plans to, and we're going to talk about this, the Women's Jazz Festival that's taking place in Arlington Heights, but uh, are you planning to, to do more with your jazz history studies in the future? You know, it's, it's my first master's degree that wasn't for a job. <laughs> it was really out of the pure joy of learning and the love of the topic of jazz. So I didn't go into it with kind of a goal in mind or something I wanted to achieve. It was just the sheer love of learning more about jazz and being with my cohort of fellow jazz lovers. So I didn't really come out of the degree with a plan. I bet there's a lot of money in the jazz history racket. I'm just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. I'm talking with Karuna Madava, one of the co-producers of the Women's Jazz Festival taking place at Hey Nani in Arlington Heights. So Hey Nani is a local music venue and restaurant that opened just over five years ago here in Arlington Heights. And we are very big live music lovers of all kinds of music. And so we became regulars at Hey Nani and got to know Chip uh, very quickly. And as we discussed our interest in music, I learned that he was also a big jazz fan and later learned that he had this idea that he had been considering for years about wanting to host, put on a, a jazz festival that really spotlighted women in jazz, women who are leading their own groups, composing, educating, and so we had this dream. Um, it did get delayed, courtesy of COVID, but we finally jumped into the deep end and got our first festival going January of 2022. And it was wildly successful. And we were just so thrilled with such a good, strong start that we became ambitious. <laughs> and uh, we applied for and received a wonderful grant from the Live Music Society last spring which allowed us to not only repeat the festival, but make it an extra day, more performances. Um, so we're super excited about this uh, Women's Jazz Fest this year. So are you more on the, the programming end of putting this together? Or are you helping kind of curate the lineup? So I would say it's very organic. I mean, the bottom line is I'm a volunteer with a great passion for jazz and women in jazz. So I've helped with marketing, I've helped with um, getting sponsors for the festival. I was part of applying for the grant for the festival. And yeah, um, Chip and I early on set goals for what we wanted for programming. And I have to say we did not meet all of our goals last year. And so in particular, there were a couple of things I had hoped we would achieve that we did not. And we were able to rectify that this year 
Um, specifically, I really was interested in getting students involved. Um, last year, that didn't really happen, but this year we've got two student performances. And this year, partially because we have more performance slots available, we really have a, just a much, much more eclectic group of musicians playing. So I'm very, very excited about that. And you talked about goals, and I don't want to be presumptuous, but is there something that there is maybe this opportunity to, to create a, a women's jazz festival that registers on a, a national level? Heck, let's say international. Let's <laughs> go straight, straight past national. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's been a lot of uh, progress in the education realm in regard to um, gender equality in jazz. But I don't think that has really resulted in much greater performance opportunities for women in jazz. And so that's really what we're providing here is, you know, asking these band leaders to come and say, you know what, play your music, play your compositions with the people you want in your group. Um, this is your chance to be in the spotlight and choose what it is you want to play. So I think that's one of the strengths of this festival, and I really see it going um, on an annual basis and growing and getting more performers and more acclaim. I don't know if there's any uh, numbers. This could just be anecdotal, but just in your studies and, and being a, a fan, do you get a sense, uh, as you already referenced, I feel like there's attention given to, to women jazz vocalists, but do you get a sense that there's more women jazz instrumentalists, or has it always been kind of the same? They're just getting more recognition now. I would say there's definitely been a tipping point. There has been a growing number of female jazz instrumentalists who have reached superstar status. And so they're getting the critical acclaim, they're getting the performances, their names are known. I think, of course, of Terry Lynn Carrington, Esperanza Spaulding, Lakeisha Benjamin, and I already mentioned Alexa Tarantino. So the instrumentalists are no longer... Um, an anomaly. You know, it's not just the Samara Joys and the wonderful great vocalists out there that more people are aware of. So they are gaining some ground, um, but by no means are we on an equal level yet with the long, strong tradition of men in jazz. Sure. And you mentioned success, uh, last year's festival, and, and this is airing on, on Sunday morning, the last day of this year's Women's Jazz Festival, so there's still a couple of programs, uh, but I did see, we're talking earlier in the week, and I saw there was already some things that, that sold out, so you are seeing that, yes. that interest from the local audience. Yes, and you know, I have to say, it's not just local. I think there are people, I know last year there were people who came in from out of town for the whole weekend, you know, got a hotel room and came to all of the shows, and that's exciting because, you know, Arlington Heights is not on the map for most jazz lovers. So people listening right now, later today, the, there's the, the jazz brunch at 10, and then there'll be an afternoon concert at 3 p.m.? That is correct. And I will tell you the jazz brunch is going to feature three sets. Megan Stagel will be leading all three sets, and she was my personal favorite takeaway artist from our first festival. She's just a remarkable pianist and singer, and uh, I cannot wait to 
listen to all three of her sets today at Jazz Brunch. And then, of course, our closer is just two amazingly hot groups. Um, Alexis Lombre is going to open with her quartet, and then the festival will close with Mary Halverson's Amaryllis Project, which is very unique and very exciting. The hope is that this becomes an annual festival. It'll, it'll come back in 2025. That is absolutely our plan. Looking forward to, to seeing how the festival grows and hope uh, people listening right now are able to get out uh, to Hey Nani today. Karuna, thanks so much for, for making time to talk with me. Gary, it was my pleasure. Thank you. That's Karuna Madava, a co-producer of the Women's Jazz Festival that closes later today at Hey Nani in Arlington Heights. You can find more info at heynani.com. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the art section every Sunday morning, make sure to check out the show's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Check out theartsection.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm joined remotely now by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. Happy New Year. Seems like it's been a minute since the dueling critics reviewed something at the Second City. The ETC Theater's latest review, Well, the Places You'll Glow, is in the midst of an open run. And Jonathan, I was thinking, as someone who's seen a bunch of Second City productions over the years, it's probably hard not to compare new reviews with things you've seen in the past. That is probably true. There have been well over 100 Second City reviews on their main stage and nearly 50 on the Second City ETC stage where where all the places will go is being presented. It's the smaller of the two uh, Second City uh, uh, principal spaces, the ETC space, and uh, this show has actually been running for several months, so Terry and I are getting to it late, uh, but it's going to have an open run because the show is regularly selling out. And I will tell you, I don't know if it's because of the show itself, that is because of the reviews when it first opens, or word of mouth, or simply because it's the Second City which is kind of a shrine for this kind of comedy theater. Now, I'm going to say that I suspect it's the latter. It's because uh, I, I didn't find, oh, the places will, will glow particularly strong as an example of improv-based comedy. And yeah, you're correct, Gary. I compare it to other Second City shows I've seen um, in a memory, an institutional memory I have that goes back uh, to the, to, I think it was about 15 years old, the first time I set foot in the original Second City, and that's, uh, you know, nearly half a century ago now. Carrie, what'd you think? Well, I will say, I'm comparing it to more recent history. I mean, certainly I've been seeing shows since I was 15, too, which makes me just having started there slightly a few years after Jonathan, but... Um, 
Wet behind yeah. the ears, Carrie. That's what yeah. you are. I am indeed. <laughs> I will say that I, although it's not the funniest Second City review that I've seen, I do think that it's of a piece with what I have been seeing there recently, sort of in what we might call the post-Trump years, um, where it's it's not as edgy, and I think that that's actually to its to its benefit. And uh, Jonathan, I don't remember if you and I discussed one of the reviews. I think it might have been Kelly Kleiman and I were were discussing it during one of your sojourns in your undisclosed locations. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a review that went up, I think, on the main stage during the the Trump years, and it was, you know, obviously there was a lot of there were a lot of big things going on. There was a lot of anger. There's a lot of you know very strong feelings. And to me, that review was trying so hard to be topical, trying so hard to throw elbows, that it just simply wasn't funny. It got away from what I think makes Second City work best, which is when they're talking about the dynamics in relationships. And um, although, again, I, I will agree with you that this wasn't necessarily the strongest example of the use of improvisation, uh, I do feel like this ensemble really is very good at listening to each other and creating these sorts of you know, whimsical but relatable relationships. Um, there's uh, one example is uh, these, uh, a mother and daughter in the dressing room at TJ Maxx, um, and it becomes this conversation about body image and what they're going to wear and how they feel about each other. I've seen similar scenes like that at Second City, but this one landed with me maybe more because we've just had Barbie and all these other discussions <laughs> going on about the patriarchy. Um, there was just a warmth and a truthfulness to it. Did it make me laugh hard out loud? No, but it kept me engaged. And I would say that's kind of a common theme for me in looking at this show. Um, they're not trying to be terribly topical. Things do come up. Uh, but I think that that's very much to its strength. And as you noted, Jonathan, of course, since they're running, you know, they run for months at a time. You know, what they might bring in as a sketch that's sort of topical at the, at the beginning of the run may have, you know, become rather toothless or by the, you know, beside the point by the end. So I don't know how you felt about that, but I felt the relationships are really strong. Mm. Uh, I, I don't disagree about the, let's say, that about the, the people themselves, the cast, the talent. This is a six-person cast. There are four women and two men, which is a reverse of what for decades was the usual male-dominant ratio at Second City. So this is a, a, a welcome change. Uh, and, you know, these six individuals, they're talented, they're energetic, they're amusing. Uh, there always are people like this, talented, energetic, and amusing at the Second City. Uh, and some of them in this cast may eventually appear on appear on the Second City main stage, and some may even achieve a stardom in far-flung careers, as so many Second City alums have done before them. Um, but that being said, I, you know, I missed precisely the topical stuff that you said, you know, was which we both agreed was not in the show. And frankly, I was amazed that the show made no references whatsoever to anything going on in the real world. Now, I saw this show a few days before New Year's, or between Christmas and New Year's. You know, there's nothing about Ed Burke's conviction, or Trump's trials, or New Year's Eve, or New Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson, or the Pope's okay to gay blessings. Nothing topical at all. And for me, topical is precisely what an improv review is supposed to do and be especially when it's been running for several months. 
uh, you know, part of the process is you constantly refresh the material. Mm-hmm. Now, even the scenes with audience participation, and there were two or three of them, uh, and that means that these scenes are partially improvised on the spot. Even these scenes didn't generate anything topical. Now, uh, uh, truth be told, I have not seen any show at the Second City in five years, maybe six, during which time the ownership of the Second City has changed, the upper-level management has completely changed, but I have to assume, I have to hope, that they haven't dumbed down the way productions are created and they haven't declared topical political humor off-limits. I certainly hope not. I'm going to push back on that a little bit. There was. I mean, the very first sketch was a guy who's in a pickup with a woman who turns out to have these MAGA sentiments, and he's trying to decide, can I go through with, right. you know, this this relationship? Um, there was definitely um, some, uh, one of the, the uh, improv sections was about a hobby, you know, that somebody has, and that hobby becomes kind of like a stand-in for critical race theory. In this case, it was sewing, and about how sewing is dividing us, and there's a country singer who is singing a song against sewing, and then it turns out, whoops, he's been sewing himself, so he has to kind of do a mea culpa. So kind of using that as a metaphor for these kind of divisions that either are really existing or that are kind of fomented by by the media, by certain political actors. Um, What I will say, what I thought was sort of interesting as a thread, is the idea of defending Chicago itself. You know, as we know, the name Second City came from an A.J. Liebling, not very complimentary, I think it was a New Yorker piece, about Chicago in the 50s, and when the company decided to name itself, they kind of did it as a tongue-in-cheek, you know, uh, you know, slap back uh, at the idea that we were the second city. And that, of course, that time Chicago was second in terms of population. I think we're hanging on to third with our fingernails at this point. Uh, stay back, Houston, stay back. <laughs> <laughs> so there's one of the sketches was a couple of people who are actors who are, you know, pretending to be moonlighting from one of the Chicago gangster, you know, t- tourist traps kind of things, tours of, you know, Capone, Chicago, and they're asking people where they're from, and then it's their way of saying, look, all these other places are a lot worse than Chicago. You know, we, all we hear about is Chicago is crime-ridden hellhole. No, there's more to the city than that. Um, uh, yeah, I think that that could have been better developed, certainly, and, um, you know, in some cases it was interesting to see what they backed away from. Somebody who said they were from Hawaii, they're like, oh, one of our castmates is from Hawaii. We're not touching that. I thought, oh, you can touch that. Why not? <laughs> you know, there'd be some things to, to touch there. But um, I, I do think that that's kind of what they're I, – I, when, when we say that they're topical, yes, but these sketches are developed over a long period of time. And I would say, in my experience, improv has been, for better or worse, less and less a component of the shows. Um for people who find that the, that that's what they really want to see, I think they still do full improv-based sets, you know, for the late nights. But I do think that, and I, I'm not going to say this is because of new management or anything like that. Obviously, I don't know. It just feels like that's been sidelined more and more in favor of the written material in, the, in recent years. And that's what those late-night, post-regular show sets, as they call them, do. Those are improv sets where they take audience suggestions and they improvise and that's the material that's set down and developed into the next full review so uh, improvisation is part of the process but most of the reviews also incorporate a few scenes actual improvisation and this show did too as i said i didn't find them particularly tropical though uh, topical or tropical they avoided hawaii not tropical (laughs) not topical (laughs) 
but you are, you are right, Carrie. Chicago is 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 more than crime. Chicago is also rats and losing professional sports friends. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and as you noted, Alderman going to jail. Which yes, a dead Burke piece would many, probably not have been a miss. <laughs> many many Alderman going to jail. You know, I, I also found. Tell me how you what you thought about this. I found the show oddly a bit abstract and increasingly so as it went along. I really never made a connection to the title, Oh, right. the Places Will Glow, which has nothing to do with either skin peels or nuclear radiation. So uh, I couldn't... Or even, or even the Dr. Seuss book that they're clearly referencing with Oh, the Places You'll Go um, in the title. Yeah, I agree. I think it's kind of oh, one of those thought, neither fish nor fowl things. I thought, they were, I thought the title was referencing anti-mame. At the end, when she when she tells her nephew, "I'll take you around the world. The doors, the windows, I'll open. Oh, the places will go, Patrick. Oh well, that's me. That's an older <laughs> well, generation." Well, Doctor Seuss, Have we ever yeah. seen them in the same room? I submit we have not. I do think yes. I would agree with you. You know, I think in the nineties is, is when I recall. Second City started doing these bigger conceptual things like pinata full of bees and, and, and things where there was always this connecting thread of all the sketches. Often, sometimes it might be taking place all in one person's head. I think they were kind of going with that a little bit here. And certainly, it, it, it's, it's literalized, the glow. There's lots of use of glow sticks and sparkly things throughout the audience, you know, throughout the, the, not just on stage, but also as they come out into the audience. I agree with you. I was not really sure how that all tied in. Like, if you're going to make this sort of a whimsical rave, you know, and sort of push it a little more in that direction. But that yep. said, I, as I agree with you that the talent on stage is great. Jordan Savusa, who is the actor from Hawaii, who I've seen in three or four reviews now at Second City, is, is definitely a standout, as is Claudia Martinez. But really, the entire cast um, is, is well worth seeing. Although, Jonathan, I think you and I did note earlier that you know, Second City's not the cheap date night out that it once was. <laughs> well, so. no, I'm, I, no, it's not, and I'm glad you brought that up, because if you didn't, I was going to. I think it's important. Second City no longer is reasonably priced the way it used to be. Uh, I was astonished to find that tickets for All the Places Will Glow top out at $65 a piece mm-hmm. for the upfront seat. And I also was surprised when one soft drink and one call brand shot cost me $38, including tax and tip. So an average couple ordering, say, two rounds of drinks and maybe a sandwich, you're looking at northwards of $200 for this evening. Uh, you know, sometimes you might see a brilliant show for that money and a notable future star, but there is no guarantee. Um, and that's, that's a lot of money for yeah. the, uh, something informal like the Second City. Is there a, a difference in what goes in the, the main stage or the ETC theater traditionally? I think the ETC, correct me if I'm wrong, Jonathan, but that seemed to be the place of the more experimental, you know, kind of the more off-the-wall conceptual stuff started out. And then the the main stage sort of started picking up on that more in the 90s. But I don't really know that there's, you know, a huge difference in terms of structure or how the work is approached. I've never really been clear on that. Yeah, I don't think there's a difference in in how they work, how they put together shows. The ETC, uh, which originally stood for Experimental Theater Club, rather than et cetera, um, is you know, seen as the last step before you are promoted to the main stage. And from the main stage, who knows where you will go. Not every actor who appears at ETC 
gets onto the main stage. Uh, I don't know exactly what the process is. Well, to begin with, somebody has to leave the main stage cast, right? Uh, or they might periodically simply recast the entire company. But that's uh, that's very very rare. So the process is somewhat the same. They might do a a typical uh, skit and blackout to a couple of songs of a show of that kind, which is really what this one is. Or they might do, you refer to a pinata full of bees, a, a legendary show that was a herald, as it is dubbed, uh, long-form improvisation in which all the scenes and characters tie together and build towards something at the end. This show really didn't do that in the classic sense. Right. And uh, But yes, a show at the ETC or the main stage might be, you know, sketch and blackout, sketch and blackout, or it could be a herald. As I haven't been for five or six years, I have not seen anything under the new management until I saw this show. I really can't make a comparison. I probably have to start getting my butt back to Well Street <laughs> and see more of what they're up to. Well, and, and Jonathan, I think you and I noted just how large that complex has become. Obviously, they have tons of classes. There's also, you know, there's the uh, the Beat Lounge, there's the Donnie Skybox, there's, uh, you know, just so many other little places yeah. now where people can ply their trade. Uh, the Up Comedy Club, which I think is more exclusively for stand-up or, you know, solo-type endeavors. It's it's not it's not what it was back when you and I were, you know, as, as, as young, you know, uh, aspiring critics hanging out over on Well Street in Piper's Valley. Oh, the places you'll glow is running at the Second City's ETC Theater for the foreseeable future. It's an open run. Before we wrap up, uh, we wanted to pay tribute to a Chicago acting titan who passed away. We actually recorded our look back at 2023 right before Christmas, and then uh, a couple days later, we learned of the the passing of Mike Nussbaum. Oh. Mike was the real deal. He was a, a brilliant, intuitive actor. He was not trained as an actor, and he didn't turn professional until he was in his 40s. He died at the age of 99, one week short of his 100th birthday. So he had a 50-year career, even though he didn't start till he was in his 40s. Uh, and he remained quite active until... Uh, really a period of months or maybe a year or so before his death. He was still an active member of Actors' Equity Association and was widely heralded as America's oldest living professional actor, equity actor. He was in movies, uh, any number of uh, movies, probably about a dozen different movies. He was on Broadway. He performed in London. And he performed on all the major stages in Chicago and many of the smaller ones as well. And people forget he also was a director of yes. note and directed some wonderful productions. He did everything from Shakespeare at Chicago Shakespeare Theater to Willie Loman in Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman and also was noted uh, everywhere as one of the finest actors of David Mamet's plays and David Mamet's difficult uh, texts and Mike was a master of these. I had the great privilege of knowing Mike Nussbaum for more than 50 years, uh, since the uh, uh, mid-1970s anyway, and actually having worked with him. And he was a sweetheart of an individual. He was warm, had a great sense of humor. Um, He was generous, 
uh, in giving to other actors and working with everyone. Uh, really, the the genuine article. Mike, we had a we have a piece running in the reader from B.J. Jones, his longtime friend and colleague in the artistic director at Northlight Theater, and I I'd forgotten that Mike was actually kind of the predecessor of Northlight Theater before it was Northlight. He was he was the director there. And uh, one of the things that B.J. talked about is how for Mike Nussbaum it was all about the hang. It was the time in the green room, the time he spent playing poker, the time he and uh, the late John Mahoney spent, you know, challenging each other to see who could finish the New York Times crossword puzzle fastest. Uh, And that's, you know, I think really quintessentially Chicago. And B.J. also pointed out, while he was on Broadway and David Mamet, Glengarry Glenn Ross, B.J. called him and said, would you consider coming back to do a show at Northlight? I think it was Quartermain's terms, Simon Gray play. And he said, yeah, my wife and I, we're getting sick in New York. We'll come back. Said, Who does that? <laughs> Who needs a Broadway show? To me, that's a very quintessentially Nussbaum thing and also a quintessentially Chicago yeah. theater thing. That yeah. People have this, you know, these decades of loyalty to the work and to the people around them. Yeah. A lifelong Chicagoan dedicated to the work and a, a wonderful individual, Mike Nussbaum. On that somber note, we'll say goodbye. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Well, you're welcome, Gary. You're welcome. You're welcome. We'll talk with you next week. I'm Gary Zydek, and you're listening to the Arts Section. The Museum of Science and Industry is exploring one of the most powerful volcanic eruptions ever in human history in a comprehensive exhibition that's on display for another week. In 79 A.D., Mount Vesuvius spewed a deadly cloud of gas, molten rock, and hot ash, releasing what's estimated to have been 100,000 times the thermal energy of two atomic bombs. The event destroyed several towns that were part of the Roman Empire, including Pompeii. The ancient Italian city is the focus of the new installation titled Pompeii the Exhibition. It features a unique mix of ancient artifacts and immersive experiences, all designed to give visitors a better understanding of what happened over 1900 years ago. I visited the exhibit and caught up with curator Dr. Vula Saradakis to talk about Pompeii the Exhibition. Well, Pompeii the Exhibition comes to us from WHE, which is World Heritage Exhibitions. This is an organization that creates these large uh, exhibitions that travel the world. So this one, Pompeii the Exhibition, has been traveling for over 10 years. It's been to other institutions, and we're very excited, of course, to have it here at MSI in Chicago with, in some cases, some artifacts that have never been outside of Italy. So they do rotate through some of the artifacts and some of the experiences to create a more unique uh, experience for the particular institution in which it's going to, like us. The size and the amount of resources available at the Museum of Science and Industry made it a perfect venue to host the exhibit. That's part of what we do here at MSI is creating these real, immersive, interactive experiences. So um, that's a large part of what you're going to see when you come here, as well as uh, the over 150 precious artifacts that are here, all of which are real. They're not reproductions. They come to us from Naples, the Naples Archaeological Museum, and are uh, there to help recreate what life was like for these people who lived in the ancient world and in uh, ancient Roman Empire in Pompeii and the surrounding area 
before the cataclysmic eruption of Mount Vesuvius, which, you know, ironically, it, it destroyed everything around it, but managed to preserve everything in relatively pristine condition. Some people might think an exhibition on the eruption of Mount Vesuvius might be better suited for a history museum, but Sardakis points out there's actually a lot of science involved in the research of what happened in Pompeii, 79 AD. What happened exactly that led to the destruction of Pompeii? It wasn't lava. It was uh, through the series of what they call pyroclastic surges. You had rock and hot ash and toxic gases erupting out of Mount Vesuvius. And we want our visitors to come here and understand that process, understand exactly what happened. So there's a couple of spots throughout the exhibition that gets into sort of the more the science, the geology of volcanoes. There we have a facilitator who's going to be walking around the exhibition um, to talk about what it is that archaeologists in our day and age use um, that is uh, LIDAR, that's the technology, uh, what it's called and it's available on apparently all the more recent phones and iPads that you can recreate sort of the 3D um, contour of what it whatever it is that you're looking at. So there's a discussion about the geology and the archaeology, um, and, and definitely some media experiences that tell you more about exactly what happened when Mount Vesuvius erupted. I read there's like being described as a 4D type of film presentation. Is that about the eruption? Yeah, so towards the end of the exhibition, it's a theater experience uh, where you actually get a really good sense of what it was like to experience the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. And then after that is the room where we have our body casts. And it's incredibly interesting, but haunting at the same time to see how these people died, whoever didn't leave Pompeii, who just fell on whatever it is that they were doing, just fell on the spot and died. And through these body casts, these plaster body casts, we have a better sense of what it is they were doing, how they were positioned. Were they holding something up to their mouths, trying to protect themselves? Were they wearing clothing? What kind of clothing? Everything comes out in the shape of these body casts, the way that they were cast. That's Dr. Vula Sardakis. She's a curator at the Museum of Science and Industry. Pompeii, the exhibition, is on display for another week through January 15th. You can find more details at msichicago.org slash Pompeii. You're listening to the Arts Section on WDCB. I'm Gary Zydek. The Golden Globes are on tonight. So I thought we'd do my top 10 films of 2023. I try to do it every year. After a few years of limited releases, the movie calendar was closer to pre-pandemic levels in 2023. Cinemas were open all year with no real restrictions though the writers and SAG-AFTRA strikes did alter some planned releases. A year after Tom Cruise helped save Hollywood with Top Gun 2, 2023's final box office numbers were salvaged by Barbenheimer. The dual July releases of Oppenheimer and Barbie made big bucks. 
Some of the other box office performers were animated. The Super Mario Brothers movie and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse finished the year as the number two and three biggest money makers, respectively. Barbie was number one by a lot. Box office returns, award nominations, neither have any impact on my list. These are simply my favorite films of 2023. So let's dive in. We'll start at the bottom. Number 10 on my list is a film titled Air. And this movie got lost in the shuffle. It was released in mid-March, which is kind of a dead zone for film releases. Air is based on the story of Nike's pursuit of Michael Jordan to partner up on what are now the most iconic sneakers of all time, Air Jordans. Nike, the brand, is ubiquitous today, but that wasn't the case in the mid-80s when Converse and Adidas were kings of the sneaker market. The film, which reunites Goodwill Hunting bros Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, highlights Sonny Vaccaro's efforts to sway Michael Jordan to sign with Nike. Sure, now it seems like a no-brainer, but there was a lot of risk for the growing shoe brand back in 1984, and boy did the gamble pay off. Affleck, who plays Nike founder Phil Knight, also directs this. The film is just a lot of fun, especially if you remember begging your mom and dad for a pair of Air Jordans when you were 12. Air is currently available to stream for free on Amazon Prime and to rent on all video-on-demand platforms. Number 9 is Saltburn. This is a delightfully unhinged thriller black comedy. Think the talented Mr. Ripley, but funnier, grosser, and set in 2006. Just like Tom Ripley snakes his way into Dickie Greenleaf's lavish life, in Saltburn, a seemingly meek undergrad named Oliver quietly embeds himself with the ultra-wealthy Catton family. Oliver is desperate to make friends at Oxford when he meets the charismatic Felix Catton on campus. They become fast friends, and Felix invites Oliver to summer with him at his family estate, Saltburn, a massive castle of a house in the English countryside. The Cattons are an eccentric, hilarious clan who have everything but self-awareness. Over the course of the summer, Oliver endears himself to almost everyone except for an American cousin and a frightening butler. But cracks begin to appear, and the film winds down with a flurry of tragedy and twists. There are some graphic scenes depicting a variety of fluids, so if you're squeamish, this might not be for you. Let's listen to a clip from Saltburn in this scene. Mama and Papa, Catton, float the idea of throwing Oliver a birthday party. Oliver, I was going to say we should do something fun for your birthday. A proper party. No Henry's, something actually fun. What do you think, darling? If Oliver would like it, I think it's a splendid idea. I think Oliver looks like he'd rather throw himself out of a window. What kind of party? I don't know, whatever you want. What do you think? About a hundred people? A hundred? Or two. It invariably ends up being two, doesn't mm -hmm. it, with this sort of thing. Invite whoever you want. All your friends. What friends? Oh, oh, how about fancy dress? Oh, yes. I can wear my suit of armor, Elspeth. Good idea, darling. We could have a theme. What about Midsummer Night's Dream? <laughs> Lovely. Bring on the slutty fairies. Irish actor Barry Keegan is outstanding as Oliver. He'll likely receive some award nominations. Rosamund Pike and Richard E. Grant are absolutely fabulous as the matriarch and patriarch of the Catton family. Saltburn is available to stream for free on Amazon Prime or to rent on video-on-demand platforms. Up next at number 8 on my list is a film that was overshadowed by two bigger releases that came out a week later. 
It's hard to imagine a Tom Cruise action movie being crowded out, but that's kind of what happened with Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. It came out July 12th, and a week later, the world was going crazy for Barbie and Oppenheimer. I wouldn't lose any sleep for Mr. Cruz. The movie still made $172 million. Hard to believe, but this was Mission Impossible number 7. Not as strong as the previous entry in the series, Mission Impossible Fallout, but still very entertaining. Personally, when it comes to action films, I'm a fan of the Mission Impossible franchise compared to, say, the Fast and Furious series. The action sequences just seem more thoughtful and impressive. The highlight of Dead Reckoning was a stunt that Cruz, of course, did himself, where he rode a motorcycle off a cliff and parachuted to safety while in freefall. There's also a fantastic action sequence filmed on the Orient Express. One of the things that might have hurt MI7 is the fact that this is part one of a two-part story. That can turn off some viewers. But as far as an action movie, you can't go wrong with Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. At number seven is the French-language film The Night of the Twelfth. This didn't get much attention in the U.S., though it was a big hit in its native France. It won six Caesar Awards, which are France's equivalent to the Academy Awards, including Best Film. The Night of the Twelfth is a true crime procedural thriller that stays with you. The movie opens with a young woman, Clara, leaving a party. Walking home alone, she's attacked and dies gruesomely. From there, the film follows the police investigation into the murder. A young officer who has just been promoted to chief of his department leads the investigation, which takes us, the viewers, down a number of rabbit holes. While in some murder mysteries, there's a lot of misdirection among the suspects, in the night of the 12th, there's too many suspects. Seemingly every man in Clara's past could be the killer. As the film progresses, you can feel the investigator's frustration as leads dry up or disappear. At the very beginning of the movie, director Dominic Mole lets us know this is a case that won't be solved. So, not a spoiler, but just something to be aware of because that can be a turnoff for some viewers. Still, as someone who enjoys a good thriller mystery, The Night of the Twelfth was refreshing in a way. I feel like many directors who make contemporary thrillers are obsessed with twist endings at all costs and thus ruin the entire story. The Night of the Twelfth gets into some bigger ideas about misogyny, and the ending doesn't feel like some type of cheap parlor trick. The French-language film is currently available to rent on most video-on-demand platforms. At number six on my list, another French film. I know, Sacre Bleu. The movie, titled Full Time, debuted in France in 2021, but wasn't released stateside until 2023. The French-language film illuminates just how thin the line between getting by and poverty can be for some families. The movie follows a chaotic week in the life of single mother Julie, played by acclaimed French actor Laurie Calame. Divorced with two young children, Julie tries to maintain a stable household in the suburbs while she works as the head chambermaid for a five-star hotel in Paris. That already challenging existence takes a turn toward full-blown mayhem due to a combination of factors. Director Eric Gravel presents the story of this struggling single mom in the form of a thriller. The film moves at a frenetic pace as we watch Julie lift mountains to get to work, then sneak away for a job interview, and then try to get back home to feed and bathe her children. There's no rest for the weary, and we, the viewers, don't get a moment to catch our breath either. The Julie character wins our affection, who, despite numerous and growing obstacles, keeps moving forward. 
Calame is fantastic in the role, balancing multiple balls in the air while standing on a tightrope. She won the Best Actress Award at the Venice Film Festival for her performance as Julie. Full Time is currently available to watch for free on Amazon Prime or to rent on most video-on-demand platforms. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm sharing my list of my favorite movies from the past 12 months. At number five, a film that dives into the hard-to-believe but real story of the Von Erich family. The Iron Claw was written and directed by Sean Durkin, who also made the creepy Martha Marcy May Marlene. The Iron Claw isn't creepy at all, it's just really, really sad. Audiences who don't know anything about the Von Erich story might be caught off guard by how much tragedy is on screen. The real-life Von Erichs were a wrestling family from Texas. The patriarch, Fritz Von Erich, was a professional wrestler in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. When the movie opens, he's retired from wrestling and is running a professional wrestling territory in Texas with his sons wanting to follow in his footsteps. Zac Efron plays the oldest brother Kevin, Jeremy Allen White of the Bear fame plays Carrie, Harris Dickinson plays third oldest David, and Stanley Simons plays the youngest Von Eric, Mike. I don't really want to get into spoilers, but for a brief moment in the film it feels like all the Von Eric brothers will find a pathway to happiness, but it gradually falls apart as one tragedy follows another, tearing the family apart. Durkin is able to tap into some strong emotions without going over the top, save for a couple scenes toward the end. The Iron Claw, which is the name of the father's finishing wrestling move in the ring, probably isn't for everyone. Some folks might be turned off by the amount of wrestling, but that's really just the backdrop for a story about family. The Iron Claw explores the ways parents influence their children, for better and for worse, the bonds shared by siblings, and the traumas that can impact families in unseen ways. The Iron Claw is currently playing in select theaters. Number four on my list is Blackberry. The film looks back at the rise and fall of the titular mobile device. Remember Blackberries? Yeah, before the iPhone changed the game, Blackberries were the status phone everyone loved. The film, written and directed by Matt Johnson, tells the remarkable story of a ragtag team who developed the BlackBerry, then became giants, and then lost everything almost overnight. It's hard not to root for certain characters, even though we in the audience know what lays ahead. Jay Baruchel and Glenn Howerton, who plays Dennis on Always Sunny in Philadelphia, lead a small, strong cast. The film was released in May, so it got lost in the summer blockbuster schedule. Let's listen to a clip from BlackBerry in this scene. Two of the tech guys who helped develop what will turn into BlackBerry are pitching their idea. We had a shop teacher in high school named Mr. Mashinsky who told us the person who puts a computer inside a phone will change the world. Well, we have a plan to piggyback on the unused bandwidth of the UHF spectrum to create an all-in-one mobile device. Um, Callahan's assistant is here to see you. So... Basically, there is a free wireless internet signal all across North America and nobody has figured out how to use it. There's free internet in this room right now. Mm -hmm. It's like the force. Sorry, have you seen Star Wars? No. So, okay, picture a pager, a cell phone, and an email machine all in one thing. Uh, We call it um, Pocket Link. Okay, uh, listen, we don't do anything like that here. We are a commercial manufacturing company. You want to talk to a VC guy. <clears throat> hey, 
and you need a better name. Blackberry isn't a straight-up comedy, but it is very funny. It has some parallels on a smaller scale to the 2010 film The Social Network. What happens to people when they achieve success beyond their own imaginations? Does power and money change a person, or does it just amplify who they really are? Blackberry is currently available to stream on AMC+, or to rent on most video-on-demand platforms. Next up at number three is the film The Holdovers. Starring Paul Giamatti and divine Joy Randolph, this throwback feels like a movie that came out in the early 70s. There's a faded patina to the visuals, and the script harkens back to an era when smart dialogue did a lot of the heavy lifting. The story, set at a prestigious East Coast prep school in 1970, centers around a teenage outcast, Angus Tully, and a cantankerous teacher, Paul Hunnam. During holiday break at this school, all the students go home or on some exotic vacation with their families, but a few unlucky kids are forced to spend their break on campus. Angus is one of those unlucky few. His mom has decided to take a delayed honeymoon with her new husband rather than proceed with the planned family vacay. On the surface, the premise sounds formulaic. We see the grouch teacher and rebellious student butt heads, but we know deep down they're going to grow closer. And they do, but not in the way that's often prescripted in coming-of-age stories that come out of Hollywood today. Things are more complicated and grittier in the holdovers. Angus's and Paul's issues run deeper than you're initially led to believe. Randolph plays Mary, the school's cook, who's also working over holiday break. She just lost her son, who was killed while serving in Vietnam. Her storyline is equally touching as she confronts grief the best way she can. What makes The Holdovers, directed by Alexander Payne, stand out is its confidence in the story it's presenting without having to turn to melodramatics in order to evoke emotions. The Holdovers is streaming on Peacock for free and is available to rent on other platforms. Number two on my list is the most ambitious movie I saw all year, Poor Things, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. Based on Alistair Gray's 1992 novel of the same name, the film keeps the time period vague, but it feels like the end of the 1800s. After a brief opening scene of a woman jumping off London's Tower Bridge, we enter a black-and-white landscape and meet Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone, and her adoptive dad, Godwin Baxter, played by Willem Dafoe. In these early scenes, it's clear Bella is an adult woman, but she acts like a toddler, spitting out food she dislikes and stumbling around Godwin's strange house-slash-laboratory. Godwin is a doctor, teaching anatomy by day and conducting crazy experiments at night. We soon learn, and this really isn't a spoiler, that the reason Bella acts like a young child is because her brain is that of a baby's. Unable to revive the woman who jumped off the bridge at the beginning of the film, Godwin goes full Frankenstein and resurrects her using a transplanted brain. Godwin is now raising her in secret as his daughter. Eventually, Bella's brain begins catching up with her body, and she runs off with a skeezy lawyer, Duncan Wedderburn, portrayed marvelously by Mark Ruffalo. The two embark on a journey that takes them to Lisbon, Athens, and Paris, with the film reverting back to magnificent color once they arrive in Portugal. Poor Things isn't shot like a traditional period piece. Lanthimos changes up the film stock and camera angles to mirror Bella's evolution. There's a lot of fisheye perspective early in the film that corresponds with Bella's views on the world around her. As she matures, the angles and film lenses change. There are also hints of fantastical imagery at different points of the movie. An ambitious project like this requires great performances or the premise just doesn't work. Audiences won't take it seriously. 
Stone is phenomenal as Bella. It's a bit of a tightrope playing the role straight, but also allowing for the natural comedic elements to come through. I found it electric. Lanthimos has created a visual spectacle full of color and contrast, and the story is unpredictable. There's no formulaic approach. Bella evolves before our eyes, but we have no idea where she's headed. Four Things is currently playing at select theaters and available to rent at the higher price on some on-demand platforms. And number one with a bullet on my list of favorite films of 2023 is Oppenheimer, a good old-fashioned epic about the man who created the atomic bomb. Filmmaker Christopher Nolan doesn't play it safe with his projects. Sometimes it doesn't pay off, like in Interstellar and, and 2020's Tenant. Other times it does, like The Dark Knight, Inception, and now Oppenheimer. It may sound simple, but there's a challenge in taking on the story of this important historical figure and making it compelling on the big screen. There are few human innovations that have impacted our lives more than the atomic bomb. J. Robert Oppenheimer created something that helped the world at a time of great need and also opened a dangerous box that can never be closed. Nolan chooses to bounce between different timelines. On one end, we follow Oppenheimer's formative years to his work on the Manhattan Project. On the other end of the timeline, after the bomb has been dropped, we witness a political effort to discredit and humiliate him on the national stage. The film's all-star cast includes some big names, including Cillian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Florence Pugh, Josh Hartnett, and Kenneth Branagh. All are tremendous, though I think Downey Jr. stands out for his work as Rear Admiral Louis Strauss. Nolan has a talent for creating visuals for the big screen, and he doesn't disappoint here. The atomic bomb testing scene is a highlight. Oppenheimer is available to rent on most video-on-demand platforms. You might see it return to theaters as we get closer to the Oscars. If that does happen, that's definitely the way to see it. There it is, my top 10 list of favorite films from 2023. Have thoughts? Want to agree or disagree? Please shoot me an email over at gzeitig at wdcb.org with some of your favorite films from the past year. And again, a reminder, the Golden Globes award ceremony is on tonight. This year they'll be on CBS after decades of being on NBC. Not sure how many people will actually be watching. The 2023 Globes had about 6.3 million viewers. Sure, that's a lot of people, but when you compare it to the Oscars, the average viewership is around 19 million people. But if you are interested, the Golden Globes will be on tonight, 7 p.m. Central Time. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.